Hello, and welcome to our Season of Creation episodes of Prophetic Voices, Preaching and Teaching Beloved Community, a podcast from the Episcopal Church's Office of Reconciliation, Justice, and Creation Care, where we explore the season and the lectionary through the lens of social justice. I'm your host, Reverend Shaniqua, Staff Officer for Racial Reconciliation, and I'm so glad you could join us. In this episode of Prophetic Voices, we'll be discussing the lectionary for Sunday, September 17th, Proper 19. Our vibrant guests this week are the thoughtful Adrian Elliott, who works for the Diocese of Olympia in Western Washington as the Program Coordinator for Multicultural Ministries and Community Transformation. She is committed to caring for creation while finding joy in it. The astute Logan Cruz, pronouns she and he, who is an Episcopal Church Eco-Justice Fellow and Masters of Divinity student at Yale Divinity School. She loves books, dancing, learning new languages, and especially loves Dolly Parton. And last but not least, the Reverend Jazzy Bostic, who is a Kanekamali woman serving St. John the Baptist and Malohia Lutheran Church in Waianae, Hawaii. She and her wife have a small homestead consisting of raised garden beds, a flock of hens, a hive of bees, a dog, and a cat. They are foster parents currently caring for a two-year-old boy who brings delight and wonder to their lives. Welcome, friends. Thank you so much for being here and being willing to be on the show today. Why is it important for us as Episcopalians or even just us as Christians to be celebrating or thinking about the season of creation? Yeah, it's a global and ecumenical movement, really being able to join in with our siblings across the world who are all in their different contexts, in their different watersheds and experiencing different things. You know, it's amazing to be able to share in our love for creation and our kind of renew our commitment to caring for creation and for caring for people who are part of creation, too. And so really, I think it's a great opportunity for us to join in on a movement and not, you know, feel so disconnected and isolated because this is really hard work and it's good to be in community with people who are caring about creation too. Hmm. I think it's a good way for us to practice what we preach about love being an action word. Hmm. Like Adrian said, joining in with other people who are doing things helps us to find other ways that we can do things instead of just say things or pray about things but we can turn those things that we wish to happen new worlds that we wish to create into reality um, by learning from other people and actually acting out on the covenant we have with the earth adding that into our spiritual formation too so connecting our faith with these things that are happening in the greater world around us to have a more like specialized approach to it too Yeah, I'd also say I'm in Hawaii, I'm on Oahu, but we're about a week out from the wildfires on Maui. Yes, creation care is about caring for what we have and sort of being in right relationship with the earth. I think it's also about righting a lot of wrongs. Mm -hmm. The wildfires on Maui have been an ecological and humanitarian disaster, largely because of like ongoing impacts from colonialism, right? Way back in the 1800s, water was so diverted to big agricultural money, to sugarcane and to pineapple fields, because that's where the American investors wanted it and needed it. And so because of that, we have land that has been sort of dry and crispy for like generations. And I think all of Maui County has been on a water restriction, except, you know, the golf courses and hotels and stuff. Right. I think there's a lot about creation care that's not just doing good stuff, which is great, but it's also really, for me, a lot of it is about repenting 
for and like setting right wrongs that have been made in the past and that often the church has endorsed. Hmm. Mm -hmm. As we're thinking about this, what sort of liturgical ideas do you have? And it could be for this Sunday specifically or just for ways to celebrate the season of creation in general. So I'm not the biggest liturgist on the planet, but when I hear this question, I just think go outside. Mm. Like even if you don't change anything about the way you worship or the way things are formatted, just being a part of creation and recognizing that you're a part of creation within creation can do a lot for our hearts and our souls. And I think allow us to connect on a deeper level. And I think that does a lot to inspire us for future action. Just getting in that space alone can do a lot. I always think of prayer as communication with God. So it's not just talking at God, but it's also listening, right? And then thinking about prayer as communication. And if we're praying for the earth, then we should be in communication with it, right? And we can't really do that so easily if we're inside a building. I guess you can, but it makes it a lot more difficult. So maybe how do we get outside and feel something? I know there's been lots of different, some people do mass on the grass or you know, some folks by lakes, they'll like lash all their kayaks together and they'll do like a communion on the water, um, which is kind of cool. Let's talk about the gospel in Matthew. There's this whole piece about like conflict. I, I know a lot of people preach about conflict in this one, but it talks about sinning. How have we as a church sinned against one another? And maybe again, thinking about how have we sinned against creation? I see creation care really as such an intersectional justice opportunity, kind of as Jazzy said, you know, to really right so many wrongs that the church is responsible for. We did this one book study, Sacred Earth, Sacred Soul, and it's very Celtic, but it talks about the history of original sin and basically how empire squelched out any indigenous form of spirituality for these Celtic folks. Hmm. And there was this whole heresy and, you know, heretical thing going on with Pelagius. And, you know, you really just see how that has played out for all of Christian history is this kind of domination over creation and this suppression and assimilation of Indigenous folks. And anything that is coming, you know, out of our cultural traditions and histories and ways of relating to the earth and to creator. You know, you just wonder if that kind of theology hadn't been so paired with empire, so paired with making it okay to then go and take people's land and see them as less than, you know, what would the earth be like? What would our relationships be like? What would people's perspective of the church be like if the church had been loving, honoring, and seeing people as good instead of seeing people as inherently bad or their different way of being as inherently bad. Hmm. So that's what I think of. But again, where do we want to start with that list of what the church has done? I think, Adrian, you articulated something that feels like it gets to the heart of the issue, which is about empire. I think all too often the church has been in bed with empire, Mm -hmm. protecting empire and interested in empire and cozy with empire in a way that then like the fruits of that are all of these different broken relationships with people and with creation. I think of, you know, in Hawaii, so much of the land grabbing and of the disenfranchisement of Kanakamali people was through missionary activity, right? And 
that's not the case across the board. Like, of course, there were pockets of like really beautiful stories of faith and really people who stood with Hawaiian people instead of against them. And there's also like a lot of institutional church that by and large endorsed and upheld the big agriculture and the big money and the disenfranchisement of local people because they were getting a cut and they were getting richer. For me, it's like that empirical thread runs through so much of our history in so many different places, and it expresses itself a little bit differently. But ultimately, it's empire is that sinfulness and that peace that there is to repent about. Yeah, I think what both of y'all just emphasize is when we're dealing with empire, it's an investment. It's an involvement over time. It's not just a one-off sin that the church did and that we can say sorry for. Mm. If we want to actually come to terms and reconcile with our involvement with empire, we have to divest from it. We have to purposefully cut ourselves off in many ways because we like to chop it up into issues at this point and say the church says this on this this on this, we're doing this for this, without seeing that connecting thread of like, well, this is all really from the same problem. And it's a continuous commitment. And I think the longer we prolong coming to terms with all of that, just really frankly, as as y'all just kind of laid out in a couple of minutes, we're still committing that sin over and over again. So it's a long process and it's hard, but it's necessary to just bring it out into the light, I think, to work on it. Hmm. What this made me think about is, is the empire, right? That is a collective. And I was thinking the sin might be selfishness, like the sin of, you know, we think only of ourselves and not thinking of how we're in relationship with the other. And I guess even a collective can do that. We as the church don't realize how we're in relationship maybe with other denominations or maybe with other faith traditions or, you know, just with other people in general or we think that there's only one right way to do something or one context, right? We all have our unique context that we're in. So maybe we fail to see the relatedness is what I was thinking about. But that lifts up a different concept when I think of empire as a collective. And I was thinking of this rugged individualism as the sin, but I don't know, I have to think about it. But this is also a lot about forgiveness. I guess it's a challenge for me. I always get pissy when people hurt me and it's like how do you forgive them and how do you maintain relationship even if they've hurt you but how do you also not allow them to continue to do that what does that look like i think an important aspect of forgiveness that we look over is that it shows respect for yourself when you're able to forgive Hmm. it's not always that you're ceding something to another side and you're giving up or that it's like a weak thing to do It's a good thing to do for yourself, too. And I think when you approach forgiveness in that way or mercy, things like this, it allows you to protect yourself. And I like your question, Shaniqua, because it is hard. Like, you don't want to just open yourself up for hurt. But I think the way that you forgive and the communication that you offer the other person is valuable. And for me, I just kind of, when it's something that is genuinely hurtful is when I just kind of trust in God and be like, oh, I know this is the right thing for both me and you, even if it doesn't feel like it. And the hurt, although it's not fun, we have to talk about it. We have to go through this together as two people or two entities or whatever, instead of like this exchange, like it's a process that involves two people. I don't have an answer for how that, how you don't continue to just open yourself up, but having the self-worth to know that forgiveness is healthy and good for you too, as a person is necessary. 
in the Diocese of Olympia, we've had a big reckoning with our organized people of color in the diocese. Mm. And there's a long history of ethnic ministries and investment and disinvestment and a lot of hurt relationships. When I think about forgiveness in that context and as a faith community or, you know, larger diocesan community, that has looked like mutual accountability. Like Logan said, you know, having that self-respect to say, this is the healthy thing. This is the new thing that we need to do, you know, and then this is out of love. You know, hopefully we can meet each other in love to work this out and to find a better and new way. But yeah, it was really that accountability piece that I think has driven a lot of the forgiveness that has come and, and that newness of life and newness of shared ministry together when we were able to tell the truth to the diocesan structure. And the diocesan structure was also willing to listen to that truth telling and then also apologize, ask for forgiveness, but make it go beyond words, you know, listen to our requests, listen to the real hurt that people have had from the structure, but also just in their parishes, in their, you know, minority parishes, etc. And so seeing actual action be paired with that, seeing funding, seeing communal care and the actual institution changing and how we have representation on different governing bodies. It's brought about more of a cultural shift. Mm. You know, we're in the middle of a bishop search. And when we're polling all of the different governing bodies, the clergy, the diocesan staff, the top priority right now is supporting people of color and supporting this grassroots group that's organized. I think people see it as a strength too. You know, they're like, wow, okay, we are really trying to make right relationships even just within our community, before we even talk about being in community with our neighbors and, you know, making right relationships, like let's get right with the Episcopalians of color that are right inside our church. So yeah, I think that that forgiveness, I mean, it's been hard and there's a lot of history and elders that have a lot of hurt from those broken relationships. Um, so it's definitely a healing process, but I do think that having that mutual accountability has allowed us to walk forward and to reimagine what we can do together. The kind of question or the discernment that comes up for me is like, am I forgiving in order to move forward with this relationship or am I forgiving to like be in right relationship with myself? Mm but like essentially to change my relationship with you, mm -hmm. right? There's a lot of times with my wife that we get in a fight and like everybody said mean, hurtful stuff, right? I am like, I really need to hear an apology. And she's like, no, I didn't do anything wrong. <laughs> That's how I was brought up. That's how my mom used to mediate conflict. She'd go like, you tell your side of the story and then you tell your side of the story. Then like everybody say they're sorry and then you hug. I don't know if it was effective, but that's what my mom did. <laughs> this is what it looks like to like get over a conflict. You know, she grew up in a different family. They didn't do that method. And so when we first started dating and like, and it still happens now that when we fight, I'm like, I really need this pattern of like conflict resolution to like be finished, like to have this circle be complete. And she's like, I just don't need it though. And I'm like, yeah, but you love me. Right. So like, we're staying in relationship, we're staying married, I'm going to need you to just say it anyway. There are times when we apologize, or when we forgive, or when we sort of move on from something like, at least for me, not necessarily because I'm like, oh, I did something so bad. But because I'm like, I really want to stay in relationship. And like, this is the path forward. Mm. And I think the discernment is like, 
when has it been a wrong that I'm like, okay, that is showing me something about your character that I don't want to stay in relationship in that same way. Or like, I need Mm. something to change about the way that we are relating or to like shift my body in some way in relation to yours. And often that's out of self-protection, right? That question of like being harmed again and again. Yeah. If we keep going back, open-hearted, open-hearted, open-hearted to a structure that has harmed us, we open ourselves to more harm. And the process, Adrian, that you're talking about of like coming to mutual accountability, those elders even being willing to share their hurt, that is grace in action. Yep. Right. Because I bet they have shared before and been ignored before. Mm -hmm. And so to like reopen that wound or to have hope, not even trust yet, but just hope that like, this might be a different moment that this might have a different yield, a different kind of result. That's like such a powerful faith. But I do think there's a part of forgiveness, which is about discernment of, is this a forgiveness to help me come into full circle and into right relationship with my own heart? And, or how much does it include the other person? Forgiveness that is about moving forward together. Is it a forgiveness that is about moving forward alone? Because I think forgiveness can be both. Mm-hmm. This made me think about, as I was reading this parable or this story, was about corporate loan forgiveness during COVID. And then when they tried to do the student <laughs> loan forgiveness and everyone just kind of like flipped out. And they're like, you know, because the corporate loan forgiveness is all about empire, right? It's all about the empire forgiving itself, mm-hmm. its own debt. And then when it comes to individuals, oh, no, we can't do that. You know, and it was, I was like, what is going on? I guess we're not too big to fail or whatever as people, right? Where do you see examples of this parable being lived out? either collectively or individually. The double standard of politicians or political administrations that vocally support climate action, things like this, but maybe invest in some bank or some Mm. fossil fuel, you know, they're involved somehow. Their words are not the same as their actions. Yes. But the people give them lots of forgiveness often because we want other things from them, or at least they're saying the right things. And they're the powerful ones with the ability to do something broader than we can all the time. But then individuals, just like the average person, it's like, if you want climate action, why are you driving your car to the protest or something? (laughs) Like we're so criticized for just existing in capitalism as if it's easy to just like opt out. Mm. And I think that that's just the standard that we hold like companies to administrations, things like that versus everyday people. And I think that's one reason that just it got my gears going because I just got frustrated when I was thinking about it. (laughs) I was like, this is why we need everyone to work together because I am not I'm weak as an individual. (laughs) But it's true. And it's just the double standard that makes me frustrated that like the higher up you are and the more power you have, the more free will, I guess you have and the less criticism actually affects you because you have things in place that protect you and your interests. So, There's a database now showing all of the different climate lobbyists who are both working for environmental organizations or groups, but they're also in bed with Empire and also lobbying for fossil fuel companies and utilities. Oh, wow. And so there's a whole database and it shows you who is kind of this double agent. And yeah, Democracy Now! did a really good story on it. And they kind of say, you know, like, 
it is hard because if you think about like celebrity lawyers or something, lawyers take a bunch of cases for a bunch of different people. It's kind of the same thing with lobbyists. They probably do have cases with a bunch of different people. But it does, like you said, Logan, get your gears going. Like how how do we expect any change to come if the, you know, academic people even who are working on this from a policy or a climate standpoint are also working with the fossil fuel industry and these different utilities? It makes me think of greed. I don't have like a specific example, but I just think it's so easy to become greedy. And to me, this is like a selfishness, right? Mm. This person was forgiven and then goes like, I want this money. I deserve it, right? Like how easy it is to be ripped away from humility and instead have a positionality of greed, entitlement, deserving, and enact that on one another really harmfully. This is greed. It's like money corrupts, power corrupts. You can say that you'll do something, but then when you're granted the resources, what you actually do could change. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's a good reminder for all of us to put ourselves in that shoe and think about like, what if I was actually forgiven for something or if I was given the opportunity or if I was granted this thing that I really need? Like, would I actually turn around and do something good with it? Or like, what would that make me feel like? And I think that that's a good like practice for us to do reading this is to not just look at this as something abstract, but something that really on like either a micro or macro level can happen to any of us. And like how we choose to act in that circumstance matters a lot. I don't know if this is helpful at all, but as we're thinking about kind of those interactions of power and of privilege, of greed, and even just of these micro things, you know, are we going to forgive ourselves? Are we going to forgive these interpersonal conflicts? And or are we going to hold these big corporations accountable, etc? I've heard it described as kind of like four levels of action. And so you've got like your individual personal actions in terms of climate, you know, the movement, but also probably this could be applied to anything. So you've got your individual personal actions, like, are you going to recycle? Are you going to drive your car to the protest? Are you going to take transit? And then you have kind of the more like your friends and family, your close sphere of interest, you know, are you going to invite your family to the protest? Are you going to all meet up at the farmer's market? Or are you going to talk about, you know, divesting your monetary investments out of those fossil fuel banks? And then you have the level three, which is more of the institutions. And so, you know, are we going to talk to the PTA? Are we going to talk to our churches or our diocese or the Episcopal church about moving its money out of fossil fuel banks? And then you have the level four, which is the policy level. And policies get implemented is through that level three institutions. I guess I offer that as kind of a way to think about it as a continuum. Logan, as you were talking, it made me think about gratitude and the role gratitude may need to play in this, you know, like if rather than a sense of entitlement, what if it was more having gratitude about the debt that you've been forgiven or about the ways that you've been shown grace or about, but if you think you're entitled to it, then maybe that entitlement goes down to the next. I'd never thought about this parable in that way. So thank you. What metaphorical debt, maybe it's a real debt, does our church need to forgive? And what metaphorical debt does our church owe, do you think? Some of that owing piece, I think is what we talked about at the beginning, some of that sin, right? We owe the debt of being in right relationship with our siblings of color, with indigenous folks, with creation, you know, all the, all the sin that we have done, right? That's probably debt that we owe, but there, I'm sure there's others. And then what debt do you think we need to forgive? 
I've thought a lot recently about how necessary healing is, even after something is righted, as we would say, or mm-hmm. we consider it on paper righted. People who have been hurt, even if the situation is okay, may not be okay still. And it makes me think of our diocese in Missouri during Pride put out yard signs that said, for the hurt the church caused, we are sorry. And Mm. it's just a yard sign. It doesn't facilitate any healing, but it at least acknowledged that just because everything seems to be chill doesn't mean that everyone is feeling chill. You know, there's still hurt that has happened in the past that people still feel, and there's still hurt going on, even though we say that it's not. So I think that being aware of the debts that we might pay off, but that still take a toll on people in our churches is extremely important and prioritizing that will help us a lot I think and I think that even you know as a queer person just seeing a yard sign at my church that I grew up in is like it's crazy what a yard sign can make you feel (laughs) you know and it's like we can you know if we can mobilize all these yard signs what else can we do where can we go from here Yeah, Logan, that's such a good point. Just because it's over, it's not over. I'm a foster parent. And so I think a lot about trauma and the ongoing effects of trauma, right? And you can be kind of fine with your foster kid, and then you'll be in a trauma flare up. Maybe you know what is happening, maybe not. Right now we're caring for a two-year-old. So it's been especially interesting. He talks, but I mean, two years old, you can't go like, I'm feeling a trauma flare-up, right? (laughs) (laughs) But what we know is like that the body remembers, right? And so even in his Mm. little like non-verbal, like non kind of intelligent mind, like body, something is feeling scary to him or something is feeling like it used to feel and it's not safe, right? And so even though he is safe with us in our home, something in him is like activated. And I think we all too often sort of expect that the debt we owe is going to be that resolution that we pass at general convention that says, now we're totally on board. I'm like, sorry, it took us so long, but like, now we're all good moving on. Right. Right. And we don't like account for the folks whose bodies remember right? And who have those like ongoing and will always have like trauma flare ups, maybe around pride, maybe around ordinate, like whatever it is, there are going to be people for whom that was so internal and so personal and so like important to them that there's going to be sort of residual care needed. And that's hard because that moves it from like The resolution and all that is institutional, but the trauma flare-up is going to be really individual and then maybe in that friends and family zone. Mm. And so maybe that's why it's hard to sort of account for. I do think like ongoing care and ongoing just awareness that that's going to be the case. Yeah, we might be doing something really great in this church around creation care right now. And we have like eons of time for which we have translated Genesis as having dominion over all the earth. And so Mm. like, that's going to have ongoing trauma attached to it, Mm. regardless of the great resolutions and the great efforts and all of that. 
And so not that one cancels out the other, but that we just hold both in awareness without trying to say like, now we're fixing it. So it should be all good. Right. And papering over what's happened. I wonder if the yard sign and like the resolution is like acknowledging that the dead exists and then actually all of that trauma flare up healing business is actually how the dead is forgiven. If we're using this Mm -hmm. metaphor, I don't want to get too deep in the weeds with the (laughs) metaphor because I I have a tendency to do that. And I'll be like, and the paper that the debt was written on is this, you know, I get way too detailed. (laughs) That always ends up making the metaphor awkward. (laughs) Are there metaphorical debt that our church needs to forgive? One of the things that I was thinking about when I was thinking about this question is maybe like some of the times when the church has separated, you know, like Methodists and Episcopalians, for example, right? Is that a metaphorical debt we need to, I won't say forgive, like it's their fault or anything, but like maybe we need to forgive in the sense of building and coming back into relationship with some of the churches and ways that we've split in the past. Or one of the ways that we're seeing forgiveness, I was thinking about the Anglicans or Anglicans here in the US, where I think there's two now churches where the Anglican congregation actually wants to come back into the Episcopal diocese. And what does that look like for us? This is not related to this gospel, but the gospel coming up, or I guess by the time the podcast airs that will have been recent, is of Jesus and the Syrophoenician or the Canaanite woman. And that like terrible time when Jesus says, let's not give the food meant for the children to the dogs. And I just, every time I hear it, I hate it. And I love Jesus. I'm like all about Jesus. (laughs) (laughs) Honestly, there are some moments in the Bible, and that's one of them that I feel like I really need to forgive Jesus's humanness Mm -hmm. and being a product of the time that he's in. And that's not the only place, but there's like, quite a few biblical moments that I can think of that are like, you can dress it up all you want, but like there's racism there, Mm -hmm. there's sexism there, there's patriarchy there. There's like some big social issues that existed then that still exist now that maybe present a little differently in our contexts. But I feel like sometimes when I come to texts like that, I'm just like, okay, God, like I don't actually know what the good news is here except that like Jesus changed his mind eventually but like I don't know that that's a debt the church needs to forgive but I feel it as a pastor of the church that sometimes I have to have forgiveness for the way the bible was written or the way the bible came into being Mm. and I put a lot of hope in like maybe Jesus didn't say exactly that or like maybe something was like missing in the way that that was recorded Because that kind of thing, like calling a woman a dog from my savior is really hard for me. I've struggled with this one too. I feel like we need to do an episode about this. Hopefully I can remember that for just an episode about some of like the (laughs) racially complicated and difficult passages. But I always think about it like sometimes there's times where like I will say something intentional. Like I might know the answer, but I ask the question anyway, because it's an opportunity for folks to learn. Or sometimes I wonder if Jesus said that because he knows that's what the other people are thinking And he knows that she's strong enough to come back with the comeback. That's the only way I've done it in a gentle way. I've also preached on like, Jesus was a racist in this moment. And even Jesus was susceptible to the sin of racism. And we need to, and that's probably heresy saying Jesus could sin, but but we need to, as a church, be just as much vigilant because if it could happen to Jesus, it will happen to us too. Yeah. Let's switch to another moment of oppression and let's go over to Exodus. And there's actually two different options here. 
and they're both about the crossing of the Red Sea, just kind of like different areas. So I'm okay if we sort of waffle between the two of them. The angel of God guided the Israelites and then moved behind them to protect them. So it kind of like led them and then it moved behind. Have you ever felt like God guided you and then later had to protect you from where God kind of led you into, especially as it relates to some of the creation care, I think like protesting and stuff. There's lots of things within creation care and climate justice work that is unpopular, even if it's the right thing to do. And I can think of a lot of times that I felt like, okay, we're going in this direction. We're moving fast. We are doing the right thing. And then I look behind me and there's like angry fists, you know, like Mm -hmm. it's not the most popular thing, even if I feel that God has led us there. And that's the way that love is taking us. There is a divestment from fossil fuels campaign at my college that I just graduated from that got so much speed and had a lot of support from the student government and from a lot of the administration. But our board of trustees did not like it very much. And it felt so awesome for a long time. And then when it finally got to that level that it was maybe a little too fast moving for our board and they didn't like how popular it was among students. Like they kind of crashed down on it for me and for others who worked at our chapel. It was like a spiritual movement too. It was something that we felt called to participate in because, you know, we know that hurting the earth is hurting God's creation. It's an act against God. So it was obvious the way that we were going to participate, but then to have people invested in climate destruction, invested in our university, kind of angry at us as students and kind of like coming for us. It was just, it was kind of scary, even though I knew that it was the right thing. And so I did feel like, God, put up a force field, please. I can't. (laughs) It was personally upsetting and also just upsetting to us as students on the campus to know that they didn't have our back and they actually didn't really care what our best interest is in our future and things like this they're invested in other things and I feel like that happens to us a lot and it's easy in that moment to look behind and be like well this backfired but in reality Mm -hmm. even when it's really scary like in Exodus even when there's like an army at their heels there is a moment in the future that they didn't know yet that they were going to get across and that God was going to do something and I think when those moments happen like in our work no matter what field we're talking about you have to have the hope for the future even when it feels like it's in the moment like it's going really poorly you have to remember that like god is behind and is going to follow up somehow that kind of makes me think about even just how creation care is viewed in our diocese and in the church kind of overall i feel like it's a hot topic no pun intended but um (laughs) That was really bad. I'm sorry. I even said that. <laughs> no, it's adorable. That's cute. Yeah. But you know, it is. It's like, oh, okay, like here's this great opportunity for like ministry, for witness. Like we're really on with the times, even though we're like really very behind the times, but like we're trying to catch up. You know, this is a great opportunity. Go do it. But then there's no follow through necessarily, or at least in a lot of dioceses mm. that I'm familiar with, like, okay, where's the support? Where's the funding, where is that kind of protection, like you're saying, Logan, like from the real decision makers who have a lot of the power to change where we are invested in and what our priorities are in ministry. And again, I feel like this is such an intersectional issue with migration, with, you know, we're dealing with 
a lot of ocean pollution across the so-called Tijuana border that's impacting communities on both sides of Mexico and the United States. And it's a whole thing. And some of our churches are invested in trying to get the governor to declare you know, a state of emergency about it. And we have folks who are doing border church and doing ministry at the border who are going down there. But like the water is polluted, even the ocean spray is really harmful and toxic, but there's no signs, you know? So it's like, we're sending people down there to go do this ministry, to show up in solidarity, but we're not even talking to each other about like, Mm. hey, this is this really intersectional issue. Like, do you all even know about this? Like, are we aware of what the community is facing and what others in the diocese are working on? You know, this is an opportunity to come together. As people who care about creation care, sometimes it can feel like being that voice in the wilderness. And even though like, I'm really grateful that our church is doing something, there's still a lot of work that we have to do in figuring out how to better support this work. So this passage talks about floods coming over the Egyptians. Adrian, you talked about water too. And right now with climate change, we have floods and we have rising sea levels. And that makes me wonder, how are we like the Egyptians in this story. What are your thoughts? Where do you put yourselves in this story? Or where do you put the church? I mean, everyone wants to be the Israelites, right? You want to be like God (laughs) feeding you and you're God's holy people and like you're all good and you're fleeing the oppressors. But yeah, I think the question of like, are we actually the Egyptians? I think to the earth, yeah, we are. Mm. All humans are. I mean, it's Mm -hmm. like a really unfortunate truth about our existence on the planet there's too many of us we use too much we love our things too much but and i mean we exist right so for the earth for sure we are the egyptians and i think the earth is trying to in a lot of ways sort of flee from us yeah i think the church is the egyptians all the time and (laughs) (laughs) Honestly, you know, I think about seeing this story in my like children's Bible when I was a kid and like a cartoon version of the water coming down. I was like very shocked, you know, you're young and you're like, God drowned a whole bunch of people Mm -hmm. like that doesn't seem right. Mm -hmm. And then I thought about it a lot and I talked about it with kids at vacation Bible school. Like it really bothered me for a long time, (laughs) even though I knew that it was good, you know. But we always talked about, well, I guess they kind of did it to themselves. And it's like, yeah. What do you expect to happen to you if you do something wrong? I don't really subscribe to that, like, if you do something wrong, God will smite you type of thing all the time. But I think that we as the church and Christians in general, um, what we talked about earlier and promoting this domination over nature and the way that our faith has been corrupted to just exploit our planet, the only one that we have. Who are we to be like, what's happening? Like, this isn't of course it's happening and some people are more responsible than others but i think that's one reason why the episcopal church needs to be at the front of this even if we're not you know the highest polluters or what have you it's like somehow we're connected to how we got here and now the water is rising over our heads and we realize oh gosh we have to get out of this so in that way like i hadn't thought about being the egyptians which like you said jazzy you want to be the israelites but i think it might be good to consider the alternative too And I think also thinking about that in the context of, you know, who is most impacted by sea level rise and yeah, seeing ourselves as the Egyptians and recognizing too, though, that in our body, 
you know, in the United States, but also globally in the Episcopal Church, there are communities who are seeing these impacts and mm. who probably are not as responsible. I think Jazzy, as you said, yeah, holding that tension of we can be both and it is necessary, I think, to recognize, yeah, our siblings who are most impacted and at the front lines when some of us are most responsible. I struggle with that in the story. Like, I love that this story is about folks who are oppressed finding freedom and being released from their oppressors. And then, of course, as Indigenous, I identify as the Canaanite, right? And so that's a whole other tension that's held in this story that we don't get to. But then that they find this thing. But the other piece is that it seems like those most vulnerable and those who are oppressed are the ones who suffer from climate change. You know, like the people who who have the most power to change are the ones who suffer the least from it. And it's almost like in the same way that like the folks who could probably change racism the most are the ones who have the privilege not to deal with it if they don't want to kind of thing. How do we see ourselves in that relationship? Where is God in there? And how? I mean, what is our role in being an agent of God or agent of Christ? So this might be taking us maybe on a different turn too and kind of back to some of the Exodus story. But one of my favorite priests, he was very anti-empire. And I think that type of formation that he provided us was like, oh my gosh, I can see hope in the church if we're going to talk about empire and how to resist it. And, you know, one of his things was like, this story of Egypt, this is really like the first incarnation of empire. And we see this stockpiling of resources, of power, the enslavement and mistreatment of the Israelites, of others, you know, to kind of fuel the empire. Mm -hmm. And so when the Israelites go through this very harrowing ordeal, you know, to get out of there and then spend so much time in the wilderness, it's almost like God is helping them. They've escaped from the empire, but the empire is still very much a part of them and a part of their whole relation to the world and well god how you know how are we going to survive we need to stockpile we need to have this control sometimes we need to other other people and so that whole exchange of walking that path to get <laughs> rid of empire and to really cleanse ourselves from and divest as logan said from these systems it's really hard work <laughs> but i do think that it comes down to you know when we talk about that spectrum and that those levels of actions like even if you're just resisting empire on a really small level. I just had a friend who works for a, it's like an environmental consulting firm and they do a lot of climate action plans and they work with different municipalities, different governments, corporations, et cetera, on these action plans. And she was saying something about how, you know, this city in California is wanting to work with the tribal partners in the area and it's this parks project. So making sure the tribe has access. And she's like, you know, my manager keeps saying tribal access, but I just feel like that's a really gross, like, I don't think that's the right way to think about this. And I'm like, yeah, I think, you know, maybe the tribe doesn't have access per se, but that's still really perpetuating these norms of colonization and whose land is it? Who has the control over it? And she's like, okay, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to talk to them about that. We need to like, you know, rethink language here and really think about partnership. And so even in those little moments of trying to resist empire, I think they're important, even though, you know, it feels like a mountain <laughs> that we have to climb to get over and to dismantle all of these systems. But 
it really does feel like those little things add up, you know, into how we are and how we relate and how we practice being Christians. In the story of Exodus, God is almost doing like very nonviolent direct action. God is like, okay, I'm going to send some plagues. Like I'm going to make it really uncomfortable for you to be comfortable. I'm going to erase the food. I'm going to take out your crops. I'm going to turn the waters red. Like I'm going to really freak you out. It's interesting. Yeah. When you think about like protests or that kind of thing, I have a lot of faith in like nonviolent direct action. I don't have a lot of faith, frankly, in like peaceful sign waving because I just, I've done it so many times and I don't think much changes. Mm-hmm. When I've done like sit-ins in a president's office and gone like, we can't get in here until you are going to change this policy. The policy changes. I mean, it like magically, it seems to like make people uncomfortable enough. Mm-hmm. I would like to think that as the church, we are something like Moses saying to empire, okay, if this doesn't change. If you're not going to change in this way, we're going to react in this way. We're going to have this nonviolent direct action and then following through on it. Moses doesn't ever make a threat. You know, he's not like, and then I'm going to kill you and I'm going to raise my sword. He's like never violent in that way, but he's not afraid of being confrontational. Hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. He's like, this is a confrontation. My people need to be free and I have it on good authority from God, (laughs) like this is going to happen next. It feels uncomfortable to say, oh, the church is, you know, speaks for God. But like, if we don't do that, then who does? I do think that's part of our job. So I think I would imagine Moses had to stay really prayerful and grounded and like trusting. I can't imagine the toll that being a leader in that time would have taken on him. And he was able to lead his people into a, as you said, Adrian, into a different type of journey, right? Like into a journey of divestment and into another way of being. And I would love to think that the church can do that for us, her people, right? Like that between us, we could figure out, okay, what is the freedom that we need? And how do we trust God to like get us from here to there? I'd love to think that that's where the church stands in navigating empire. I love the passage ending with Miriam grabbing her tambourine and just like starting to play and sing. And like here they just had this huge trauma that they just got through. And then, you know, I feel like that I have aunties like this where they're like, all right, it's time to party. We got through this ordeal and now we're going to celebrate even amidst the chaos that's going on around us. Where do you see occasions for singing amidst? the ordeals we're currently going through. Oh my gosh. I feel like I see opportunities for that everywhere because I think that that's sometimes the biggest form of resistance. You don't have to wait until there is a moment to sing about in order to sing. Mm. I think about how nature sings to us, even as it's suffering. I go outside every day. I have the Cornell bird app that they made that you can turn it on. It'll ID the birds around you singing, or you can take a photo and it'll tell you what bird it is. And it's so fun. I love it because I'm learning about the things around me that I hear and I have no idea. I'm like, that's a robin. And no, it's not. So I'm learning. And it's just incredible too. You know that things aren't going too well. And yet they're doing okay, at least in the moment to seeing out. When I was still in Texas and San Antonio, I traveled up to Austin in May 
because the legislative session was targeting trans people and there was a huge sing-in before a sit-in. It was like to gear people up before acting and before blocking the stairways and stuff. And it was all people of faith who were leading it from different faith backgrounds, bringing in hymns of resistance from their traditions or the civil rights movement or things that were created at this place or, you know, it was super cool. And it was so funny because there was a, he's security for the Capitol, but he's a cop and he had a, gosh, what is it? It says how loud you are. And there was a certain like decibel measurement that we couldn't exceed. And so he was standing there like with his hat on because it's Texas, you know, and everything. And he was listening to us singing. And when we went too loud, he would like tell us. And then we would just sing louder. (laughs) Awesome. Who would have thought that the singing and we were singing, I think at that moment, this little light of mine that got on their nerves the most. And that drove them crazy the most because they were coming for us and they could hear us. And it was our joy that they had to send a cop to monitor. So I think that there's always room for that. And I think that it's really fun for the people involved and it can offer a moment of like relief and also strength before you go act. Miriam's case, you know, it was like, we just did this awesome thing. They still had a long way to go, but there's always room to stop and take a moment to just be joyful. Your sharing, Logan, is making me think of all the ways that chant is used in protests in Hawaii, like just the few kind of, yeah, chants or songs that everyone knows are often in Hawaiian rights protests and environmental protests. I'm not going to know it exactly, but I know that there's like some kind of biological phenomenon, right? Where like your hearts actually start to tune into each other if you're singing Mm -hmm. together and you're breathing together. I think there's something so powerful about that, like, collective energy holding as well and it makes me wonder if Miriam started singing I mean it says like all the women went out after her with tambourines and with dancing like this was not just one woman going like woohoo right (laughs) she was like releasing something and inviting something collective that is also a part of the like healing right is going into a place and going like I'm not here alone I'm with my ancestors and with every person who's ever sang this little light of mine. Mm-hmm. Mm. What tips do you have for preaching this lectionary? I originally thought about preaching Matthew. I usually always tend to go to the gospel, but now after our discussion about Exodus, I really think I want to preach on Exodus on this one and talk about, you can go so you can go with the water, but I definitely am going to talk about the singing because Singing is so powerful. And in our Lakota way, you know, we have our Dakota hymns and those are very powerful for us to sing together and they'll bring tears to folks' eyes a lot. And there's just a lot of meaning behind them. I think that as we are in the season of creation and as we're thinking about all of these tensions, like that's really all it is. It's just like a big ball of tension and all of these, you know, it's hard to hold all of these things together. I think, yeah, talking about the trauma, talking about like what we need to forgive, what we need to account for, and yet also talking about the joy and these new worlds to come that hopefully we're helping to usher in. I think it's all really important. Kind of going back to the the singing, but a different way to think about it. There's this really great climate comic who she does all of these really fun little comics. I mean, well, they're not fun. They're very existential, but it really holds space, you know, for that tension. And so I wonder if 
part of your bulletin or part of your practice for your liturgy for the sermon, having people to look at, you know, these comics and sitting with the vastness, but also the really smallness of who we are. And yet, you know, we can have this huge impact on the earth, whether positive or negative, huge impact on our communities, whether positive or negative. I think her name is Madeline Jubilee Sato, I believe. And I can send the link, but again, it just holds that space for kind of the existentialism of all this, but also just like the really real, like, this is my body. This is my neighbor's body that's experiencing this. This is our community that's experiencing this. How do we respond? One of the things that's woven itself through all of the readings and a lot of our conversation is this like individual collective dance and relationship. I'll be thinking about that sort of the ways that we individually contribute to the collective, what it is that we contribute, like if we're contributing our songs and our tambourines, if we're contributing our forgiveness, like when mm. and how, that idea is really captivating to me because of the smallness that I sometimes feel, that I think everybody sometimes feels, right? That we are small, but we are together, like that kind of mm -hmm. stretchiness between smallness and bigness, between individual and community. Jazzy, I would tie that into what you said earlier about discerning what kind of forgiveness is necessary and just the different levels of things that all of this exists on that we've covered through that model of individual friends and family institutions policy. But then also there's other things like forgiveness can happen on all of those levels. You as an individual have to discern. So I always want to find like a nugget that's like simple enough and like abstract and like poetic to like say, but also honoring that things are complicated and it can mm. help us achieve a lot more if we can take a second and like maybe parse through something that's frustrating like the Matthew gospel or something that doesn't make sense the first read through, but something that you can take with you I think rather than like you hear someone talk about it and you are like oh I got it it's more of like a something you learn from continuously I guess thank you so much for being a part of this today and sharing your wisdom and thoughts and stories we really appreciate it thanks for having us it was fun super fun yeah it was if you want to learn more about Beloved Community, visit episcopalchurch.org forward slash beloved hyphen community. If you want to learn more about creation care, visit episcopalchurch.org forward slash creation hyphen care. Thanks to our guests, Adrian, Logan, and Jazzy. Thanks also to our production team, especially Chris and Asma. If you experienced a parting of the waters today, please rate, review, and of course, share our podcast. Until next time, let your light shine. You're invited to join thousands of Episcopalians, neighbors, and friends this summer at the Love Always Revival at the KFC Yum Center in Louisville, Kentucky. On Saturday, June 22nd, get immersed in inspiring worship and community, deepen your love for God, kick off the 81st General Convention, and extend a warm welcome to folks discovering the Episcopal Church. The revival is free to attend, so bring your friends. If you're from a neighboring diocese, check in with your diocesan revival champion to find out about group travel options. You can find more information along with registration at iam.ec 
Love always.